Welcome to the Objection to the Form podcast. This is my first episode with a guest, so I'm really excited to have Rebecca Newtson here. Uh, we're sitting over six feet apart to maintain social distancing, um, but it's it's a, a treat to have Rebecca here. Uh, she's a very accomplished local attorney that practices at Cranfield, Sumner, and Hartzog in their Wilmington office. Rebecca's a super lawyer, a legal elite, a best lawyers in America. So she's got uh, several accolades and she's uh, got a lot of good information to share with us. Well, thank you for having me, Justin. Uh, today's topic that we're going to discuss is entering into construction contracts. And we're going to discuss some information that applies across the board to builders, to realtors, to property owners, and kind of the idea is to do a short deep dive into some topics to be aware of and hopefully you'll find some of the information useful. Uh, Rebecca is a good person to discuss this with because of, of your extensive knowledge and, and litigating construction disputes and kind of what you've seen over the years when, when these contracts go awry. So I'm excited to hear what you've got to say and to tell our listeners. Thank you. So kind of taking it from the top, I'm interested to see what your thoughts are in the contract formation process because um, sometimes what I've noticed in, in my practice is sometimes I'll get a, a contract for a million dollar home that's a page long and then other times you'll see a contract that's several hundred pages long um, that's over cumbersome it's got a lot of language that's not necessary uh, what do you find is kind of an appropriate length or, or subject matter to have in a contract um, generally, uh, one-page contracts usually aren't sufficient. You don't want a bare-bones contract that doesn't plan for unexpected circumstances. Um, a lot of times at the beginning of the contract, property owners don't realize there's more things to discuss than just the price and the time frame for construction. Um, being a litigator, I see when these contracts go wrong, and primarily the reason is parties didn't discuss something. There was, there's nothing in the contract saying what to do in that situation. Biggest example is changes to the design plans. Well, in most of the contracts you're seeing, I'm assuming that they're prepared by the, by the builder. That's generally the case. Um, not always. What I see a lot is there's um, certain uh, companies that sell forms. American Institute of Architects is one of them, AIA. A lot of times I'll see parties using those forms without really truly understanding the terms of the contract and what they're agreeing to. What, what kind of trouble can you get yourself into by using a form contract that, that you might not understand? Well, um, example that comes to mind is I had a contract um, between a property owner and a builder that stated that every pay application had to be approved by the architect. Neither of them realized that. Halfway through the project, property owner doesn't approve of what the builder is building for, looks at the contract. If they haven't been following that process all along, it's really hard to then start enforcing it. We went through the contract and figured out that neither of them were following the contract. So it's very hard to enforce something or solve a dispute when when neither of you have been following the agreement. And isn't it fairly rare for the architects to be involved in in the construction process? I think it um, I think it depends on the size of the project. Um, I think with commercial projects it's not uncommon to have an architect do um, contract administration and supervision. Um, residential you, you don't really see that as much. Um, 
I think that's one important thing that needs to be discussed is, is the architect or the engineer going to be involved during the construction? And if there's changes to the design plans, how is that going to work? Um, who has to approve them? Well, taking it from the top, when you know, from the beginning of the contract formation process, is there any due diligence that a property owner should do as far as looking into the, the entity that he or she may be contracting with? Absolutely. You know, first thing comes to mind is making sure they're a licensed contractor. Um, North Carolina Board for General Contractors, you can go on their website and just enter in their name, find out if they're licensed. You know, that's an important thing. I think a lot of a lot of it has to be discussions. The problems that I see generally result from different expectations. You know, for example, the homeowner is hiring a general contractor. They're under the assumption that that general contractor is going to be there on site every single day supervising the job. That may not be what the general contractor is planning on. They may plan on just hiring subs and coming by once every two weeks. Those are conversations that need to happen in the very beginning. What would you suggest? Would it be including language in the contract that obligates the general contractor to spend a, a designated amount of time on site? I think, again, that would depend on the situation. I think, I don't think you necessarily want to obligate someone to spend a certain amount of time on site when it may not be necessary week to week, or it may be necessary for them to spend more time, but then they're complying with the contract. I think it's, I think it's an important conversation to have to get an understanding of how does the general contractor manage their projects? Is the person you're speaking to and contracting with, are they going to be the ones going on site or do they have another employee? Um, how often is the employee going to be on site? Who is hiring the subcontractors? All of those things, um, I generally find contractors and owners both have different expectations and believe that they're on the same page and it's not till something goes wrong that they find out that they're not. Well, who, who would you address or who would you suggest take the lead on those issues? Maybe a real estate agent or the, the parties to the contract themselves? I think the parties to the contract, you know, that that's kind of outside of most real estate agent scope. Um, I think what a lot of the problem is, is if you've never built a home before, you don't, you don't know what discussions to have. And you may have a different understanding of how things are going to go than your builder has. It's also important to find out a lot of times general contractors, they don't want um, the property owner to come on site during construction. Well, I imagine that could be pretty annoying to have the, the property owner or the prospective property owner, they may not have closed yet, kind of looking over the shoulders of the contractor while they're trying to build. Absolutely. Um, you know, from the property owner's standpoint, they, they're paying for it. It's their property. But, you know, from the builder's standpoint, um, it's not conducive to a successful job site if you just have the property owner dropping by whenever they want. There are safety issues. Um, there's certainly issues about them coming on and um, directing other subs. That, that's a conversation that needs to be had before. Um, you know, it, it may be that the property owner expects to be able to come by and see the project anytime they want. That's something that needs to be discussed at the and very beginning. Harass um, the subs? Well, I, you know, harass is strong, but I, I think 
I've seen that a lot where the property owner comes by a construction project, they see a subcontractor doing something that they think is incorrect and then come and try to direct the subcontractor. Subcontractor doesn't know who they are or have any kind of relationship with them. They report to the general contractor. Yeah, and that sounds like kind of a recipe for a bad situation. Um, and, and, you know, from the, the types of contracts, I guess we're talking about specific issues within the contract. Um, when you're looking at the type of contract overall, um, how would you explain the difference between a cost plus contract versus a, a fixed price contract? Well, um, fixed price is exactly that. You agree on a price that the project is going to cost, that price is written down, that's the cost of the project. Um, Generally, there, there's something in the contract that um, kind of speaks to changes. Um, you know, if the design plan changes, if the owner changes their mind on materials, what the procedure is going to be. Um, cost plus contract is um, whatever the builder's costs are, um, you're liable for that, plus, you know, generally a percentage, plus an additional percentage, 15, 20. It just depends. However, that can be problematic in that the parties may have different ideas of what the costs are gonna be. And an important thing to have in your contract is what happens if the costs are two times as much as is estimated? Well, sure, especially I imagine if lenders are involved and you go over your loan authority or your loan approval, that seems like that could be a pretty bad situation when it's time to, to close the transaction. That, and that that's another um, conversation to have with your contractor and potentially put in the contract is a lot of people have construction loans and there's certain um, ways that the loan has to be paid and that may not be what you agreed to in the contract. Well, how does it how could it happen in a manner different from what the contract says? Uh, when what when the bank will release funds, um, how quickly they will release them, um, that may be a problem with your bank. Um, your bank may not issue payment. Um, each bank kind of has their own um, procedures that you need to follow. So I guess, is it, would you suggest consulting with your, your lender or kind of knowing the intricacies of your bank's draw policies or, or you know payment policies before finalizing your contract with your with your builder? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, letting your builder know that from the beginning that this is how my construction loan works, this is how my bank says the process is going to work. Um, if that's a problem, that, that's something that you want to address in the very beginning. So some banks will have an either a representative from the bank or a third party representative go to the property to verify that certain stages are complete before approving a draw. Um, to what extent does that bind the property owner? Well, um, some banks do have that. Um, I see that a little more now than I used to. Um, what I generally find is the problem is property owners assume that the bank has someone who is doing that, and that's not generally um, the situation. So, you know, there'll they'll often be problems where um, they realize they've paid a contractor for work that wasn't done or was done um, incorrectly. Um, and, and at that point, um, 
it's hard to go back. They've already been paid. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of times property owners will be under the impression that, well, the bank wouldn't have paid it if it hadn't been completed. Um, even if there is an inspector from the bank, I think it's important to find out how often is the inspector going there? What are they inspecting for? Are they going through every line of the pay application? Well, it seems like a lot of times the bank's inspector, they may either just be going through the motions or, um, you know, they, or they, they may not, they may be serving the bank's interest instead of the property owner's interest in the quality of the construction. That could be the situation. Um, I generally recommend uh, property owners to have um, either their own independent architect or engineer um, doing some sort of supervision. How much does that typically cost though? I, I think that can vary on uh, how much supervision you want. If you want um, every single invoice to be approved to be approved in, in detail by the architect or engineer, that's going to be more expensive at then you just want the architect to come by once a month to make sure everything's going all right. If I'm doing new construction residential for a, a home that's going to cost $250,000, is there a practical way to get an owner rep or a contract administrator to, to get involved in, a, in a, a project of that size? The most convenient way is if your architect who did the design plans or your engineer provides those services. Um, that's not always the case. Yeah, and a lot of times, kind of in, in, in that price point, in that area, you're dealing with the builders, the one that's kind of giving you floor plans or giving you options. So if you're in that situation where you're shopping in a neighborhood and you've got different floor plans available, um, what are your options as far as getting some level of oversight over those builders? That that would depend on the builder. Um, I, and that that's why you need to have um, those conversations. There may be builders that prohibit um, any third parties from being on site without prior approval. So you can't really have an architect or an engineer looking into things if they're not allowed on site. Let's say the contract's silent on the issue. So I presume if the contract's silent, um, would you think that the property owner would be entitled to bring whomever they like to serve in an administration role? I think that's an argument that has probably been had several times. I, I, I think the property owner would say yes and the builder would say no. Um, and, and that really is the most important purpose of really understanding going through your contract and having these conversations is um, planning for unexpected events. Um, I only see the things that generally go wrong and so a lot of these unexpected events pop in my head immediately when I review a contract but someone who doesn't see this every day isn't going to think to plan for certain things um, this pandemic is uh, is one of, it's one of them yes and I know construction is considered to be a uh, an essential activity at least in North Carolina but it's certainly um, has been affected by what's going on with a lot of the support and um, a lot of the retailers and a lot of the, the entities in the supply chain have been impacted and that kind of slows down the whole thing. It does and especially when there's contracts that uh, the builder has to complete the project by a certain date. Um, there's been a lot of circumstances lately where 
supplies aren't available as quickly as they used to be. Um, particularly, a, a lot of contractors have to use um, personal uh, protective equipment th that's not available. That can slow things down. Well, that brings up two issues uh, that I wanted to ask you about. Was one, um, liquidated damages, kind of just a short summary of what that means and how that can apply. And then secondly, I'd like to talk to you for a second about force, force majeure clauses. So to, to start with the um, liquidated damages, um, you know, typically that involves a situation where um, it's a penalty in the contract where a monetary fine or amount is set and established as the amount of damages should an event not happen. Like for an example, um, if, the, if the home's not complete by a certain date, the contractor would be uh, expected to pay uh, a daily amount for each day the, the home is late. Um, is that, can you feel comfortable if you have a clause like that in your contract that it's going to be enforceable? Well, that, that's why you would need an attorney. Um, it depends. Um, you know, what, what, is, um, what is considered um, a delay that's excused? If it's a weather delay, um, is that excused? If there's um, a pandemic and there's a delay, um, I, I think you're going to find a lot of the time contractors are reluctant to agree to such provisions of um, if it's not finished by this date, um, this is, you know, you get $100 back per day. Um, but one thing they have to, they do have to keep in mind is um, a lot of times if your construction loans don't close on time, you're going to be penalized by the bank. Um, and that, that's something you need to account for, that if that happens and there is a delay in closing on the loan because construction isn't complete, who's responsible for those costs. So that sounds like a strategy that may make sense and that might be palatable to a, a builder. Just say, look, my, my loan requires me to close by a certain date. Um, if I do not, these are the penalties. You know, will you indemnify me for the penalties or will you allow these penalties to be the liquidated damage? I mean, I'm not saying they'll all agree to it, but that seems like a strategy you could use to that, that they might agree to. That's possible. Um, I, I think... Uh, you mentioned indemnity. The word indemnity itself, I think a lot of times it's in most contracts, and I think a lot of times people don't understand what that means, and that's probably one of the most important clauses in the entire contract. What do you, uh, what do you think people need to know about that, and what's so important about indemnity? Um, I, I generally tell my clients, um, both builders and property owners, if you see that word in a contract, you need to have me look at it to explain what it means so that you understand what you're agreeing to because you can potentially agree um, that if there's a problem um, later that you're liable for all your builders attorneys fees or costs or the homeowner is liable for that um, a lot of times people aren't sure what that means and they sign it and then they realize later I didn't ever agree to, you know, to pay their attorney's fees in a dispute. And you look at it, and sometimes you did, and you didn't realize that. And the and indemnity, uh, in a lot of sense, uh, serves as the basis for a lot of these construction disputes you're involved in. Um, can you kind of can you explain to everybody what your typical construction lawsuit looks like from a party standpoint? Um. Uh, well, um, if we're talking about residential 
Um, generally, any indemnity issues, um, indem indemnify indemnity for those that don't know, is basically to uh, be accountable for someone else's loss. Um, what I frequently see is issues between subcontractors and contractors and indemnity agreements. Um, you know, a property owner, let's say, will have a problem um, you know, with the plumbing. Plumbing wasn't installed correctly and will file suit against the general contractor um, for their damages. General contractor may bring the plumber into the lawsuit and the general contractor may take the position that whatever you know whatever damages that the court says I have to pay for the plumber has to pay for because that's his work if you don't have an indemnity provision that's not necessarily the case and to me that seems like one of the most difficult things of a construction lawsuit is the courts trying to determine who's who is to blame for the de specific defect or could be multiple defects and you know the where the general contractor is coordinating and kind of running the project but it may be two or three different trades were involved they could have all caused the same problem or contributed it to it or it could be uh, just one subs fault that caused the whole thing it's kind of a you never know what you're getting into absolutely and once the house is finished it's not as easy to just look and see where the problem is um, around here water intrusion as um, very common problem um, and something that's litigated over a lot a lot of different things can cause water intrusion um, and do you want to do destructive testing to find out who it is the property owner um, from their standpoint they want the general contractor to take care of it they don't care what subs fault it is um, but from the general contractor's perspective, they want to know who caused the problem and who's liable to them for what they have to pay. So for our purposes, the people that might be listening, uh, it, it, it's kind of rare, w would you think, to have a contractor want, expect the property owner to indemnify the contractor. Do you think or do you think that's I fairly think, common? I think it's... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's not the norm. Um, I think that there are contracts and um, that require um, the property owner to do that. And um, every single time I've seen that, the property owner didn't realize what that meant. And that's kind of why I meant is that that's, that, that word is, is a, a red flag, I guess, or at least something that requires follow-up and maybe contact with the attorney or whomever to really get to the bottom of what exactly is your exposure when something like that's going on if you're indemnifying a contractor who may have an unlimited number of subs and sub subs and and you know you, sometimes you don't know exactly know who's going to be at the site um, and so going back to the second thing I wanted to, to talk to you about kind of within that category was force majeure um, have you seen many situations going on where contractors are using force majeure to uh, to uh, get out of obligations and construction contracts as a result of uh, COVID-19? I, I think it's um, it's starting and I think it's going to continue. Um, once again, it all depends on how that clause is drafted. Um, not every force majeure clause contains the same language. So whether or not um, 
any delay is accountable or whether the contractor can um, terminate the contract, that, that's going to depend on what the clause says. What are, what are options or what are different ways that a force majeure clause could handle? Um, you mentioned a moment ago that uh, depends on the language of a force majeure clause. What are the, the um, different poss possibilities? Um, well, what events are covered um, by the force majeure? Um, prior to this, um, you'll find most of those don't include um, a pandemic as a reason for delay. Um, hurricanes, um, unexpected weather events, that's something parties anticipated. I think prior to now, nobody anticipated that there would be um, a nationwide pandemic that would prevent people from working. And, and kind of for some of the folks that might be watching or listening, uh, force majeure is kind of a situation where it's an unexpected force of nature or an event that's beyond the party's control that could impact uh, the party's ability to comply with the contract. And so kind of what we're discussing is, is if, if a contract has such a clause, um, can the clause excuse one of the parties from, I mean, it could go the other way too. It could be potentially a uh, property owner um, trying to invoke a force majeure maybe because of their financial situation changing or, you know, I guess it could go, it could go both ways, but you're, you're definitely right that I don't think many saw this coming as far as, uh, you know, a pandemic that could be interrupting people's con contractual obligations. I, I don't think, um, I don't think they did. And it's going to be primarily a gray area of whether or not the pandemic is covered by the contractual clause. And, and I think, um, the courts are going to start seeing a lot more of these cases. Um, you know, here in construction is still, um, the, you know, deemed an essential business. Um, I can see a property owner making an argument that there's nothing that should delay you working. Construction's an essential business, um, but you have problems where half of your workforce isn't available anymore or you can't order the um, PPE that you need to perform certain functions of the job, that, that's going to have an impact. And that is going to be beyond the contractor's control. But is, is that a situation that the clause covered? I, I think yeah. there's going to be disputes on that. Another type of clause that's common in construction contracts, and I think kind of fits in that category that you were talking about, about where sometimes it's in the contract, but the parties don't quite understand it, is arbitration clauses. And, you know, sometimes I'll have clients that'll ask me, should I put this in there? And I think it's kind of, you know, just like everything, it's a depends. But um, what are your thoughts on the inclusion of arbitration clauses? Um, I prefer to refer to them as dispute resolution clauses. Why is, why is that? Why do well, Arbitration is one way to resolve a dispute. Um, dispute resolution clauses um, basically provide for what happens if there's a dispute between the property owner and the contractor. What happens? Do they, can they just file a lawsuit and go to court right away? Um, a lot of times the initial purpose of arbitration clauses was um, arbitration was supposed to be a quicker, less expensive procedure to resolve the dispute and you don't really have the options to appeal like you do in court. So, you know, that was primarily 
put in there both for both parties' benefits of if there's a dispute, we've already agreed this is how we're going to resolve it. Um, I've seen dispute resolution clauses. I always like to uh, put something in there that you have to give some sort of written notice of the dispute first. I've had clients that had no idea that the property owner had a problem with any of their construction and then they're served a lawsuit one day. And, and I'm always asked, are they allowed to do that? They didn't contact me first. They didn't ask me to fix this. In North Carolina, yes, they're allowed to do that. Um, so generally, um, I like to have something in there of if, you know, if there's a problem with not receiving payment or a problem with your contractor's work, you need to provide written notice and give them X amount of time to resolve it. Or um, dispute resolution, other contracts I've seen require mediation before you can go to court, before you can go to arbitration, um, to try to resolve disputes um, before it gets to that point. Um, however, there's a lot of considerations people uh, don't account for is, you know, there may be a contract that says, okay, they have to mediate the dispute uh, before either party goes to court. Well, who pays for the mediator? Who gets to pick the mediator? And, and that's kind of what I've seen, in the, or in, in my opinion, a lot of times arbitration or dispute resolution clauses are used to hold down the little guy or they're, they're oppressive. Like, you know, for instance, if you've got a clause that says before any lawsuit can happen or any arbitration can happen, you have to go to mediation. So then the property owner or the party with less money has, has paid for half or potentially the entire mediation. Then they're having to pay for arbitration, which is a, a, a private lawyer to resolve the dispute. It could be anywhere from one to upwards of three to five in your arbitration panel. Um, some services that administer arbitration, such as the, the AAA, um, they have institutional fees for filing, whereas you know your AAA arbitration may cost $1,000 to file where um, going to superior court and state court's 200. And so it has the, it has kind of a prohibitive effect of keeping um, litigants that are, uh, that are, that are financially disadvantaged from being able to have access to, to, to courts or to uh, pursuing their issue. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it definitely depends on whether there's language in there saying who's paying the costs. Uh, do the parties have to split the costs? Um, or is whoever has the dispute have to pay for everything? Um, I think a lot of times I've seen very, very general um, clauses that, you know, the parties have to arbitrate and, you know, they have to pick an arbitrator they both agree on. Um, well, what, what if they can't both agree? And who's, who pays the arbitrator? Um, does each party pay their own attorney's fees? That's going to be the presumption. And my understanding is that, that the law favors arbitration clauses and that the courts are going to bend over backwards to not deal with it and send the case to arbitration. But a lot of times you're in these situations where you've got a poorly drafted arbitration clause um, that in many ways is unenforceable, just kind of like some of the things you've put in, like, well, we agree to arbitrate. Well, you know, so in, in situations like that, does the North Carolina Arbitration Act provide kind of a backstop of default rules for for those type of situations? or There are in, in some situations, but 
you know, I continue to see situations that um, were not anticipated. Um, you know, for example, let's say a property owner um, has a dispute with the builder and one of the builder's subs. They may have an arbitration agreement with the builder, but they don't with the subcontractor. So you can't force the subcontractor to go to arbitration. So you've got a choice of, do you proceed against the builder in arbitration and the sub in court? Well, now you've got two actions. Um, you've got to, you know, the, the messiest um, situation I've seen is where the, you know, some commercial buildings, um, general contractor, you know, had many, many subs. Each agreement with each general contractor had a different arbitration clause. Some didn't have any. Um, so when there was a lawsuit and the owners filed against um, the general contractor and all the subs, every single party had a different agreement of how disputes were going to be resolved. Um, and, and it ended up it ended up being there was a court case and there was an arbitration um, over the same thing because you can't force a party to arbitrate if they haven't agreed to it. And that that certainly seems against the kind of the goals of arbitration of a uh, of a quicker resolution and kind of a, a more cost effective um, approach. Uh, the last two topics I'd like to discuss with you um, are one termination. You know how when you're entering into a contract, um, what do you look for in the termination clause? Well. Um... A lot of times you don't see a termination clause, which is a problem. Um, generally, when a contractor and an owner enter into a contract, they're not thinking of a situation where they're not going to want to contract with the other one. Um, th there are two types of terminations. Generally, um, the, the contract will, if you have a clause discussed, there's um, a termination for cause and a termination for convenience. Uh, termination for cause is, you know, you have a valid reason for canceling the contract. Um, from the general contractor's um, point of view, a termination for cause would probably be not being paid. Um, from the property owner's point of view, termination for cause, you know, would probably be if the work's being done incorrectly. Um, but it's... Um, that's still a, a gray area. Um, and what it provides for also is, there's also termination um, for convenience of what if the builder um, just doesn't wanna work on the job anymore? What if it's just not working out and um, they don't want anything to do with the job? Um, what if they terminate the contract, what are they entitled to be paid for? If the property owner finds another contractor that they like better and can finish the job quicker, if they terminate the contract, do they owe the whole price to the contractor? The contractor is going to take the position that they do. Well, it seems like certainly in the when you're drafting the contract or in the negotiation stages, um, the definition of a for-cause termination is a good thing to, to discuss with the other party and kind of get everybody on the same page in terms of that. Warranties, and this is one of the issues that, that I see. Um, a lot of times you'll see a, a property owner pay money for a warranty and think that they've um, 
made a good purchase and are and and are happy with that, but it turns out that they are limiting their rights through the warranty. You know, for example, in most new construction, you've got the implied warranty of of um, of workmanship and the implied warranty of habitability. But if your contract or if your warranty waives all implied warranties and you're just purchasing a one-year warranty, you could be really limiting your remedies. Absolutely. Um, I, I think a lot of the time, too, um, people don't necessarily realize the things the warranty does not include. Um, you know, you may have um, a warranty for a certain period of time, you know, one year. Well, if, um, if there's a problem or some, you find something that's not done completely, how long does the contractor have to, to respond to the warranty? Can they wait till the end of the year to respond to everything? There are some contractors that will take the position that they have until the end of the warranty period to do anything. And typically those large or those those warranty waivers, your your uh, your language of you're waiving all your implied warranties or everything like that's usually in bold all caps. Although it doesn't have to be in order to be effective, so it's certainly important to check the fine print. But but in your standard form contracts that seem to get shuffled around, usually it's all caps. You're waiving all your other rights at, at law and equity other than this one year warranty, and it have to be pretty lousy construction a lot of times to to observe the defect in, in the first year. Yeah, I mean, so it just depends on what the problem is. Um, a lot of times um, people will find that the warranty they agreed to doesn't actually cover uh, what that problem is. Um, it, you know, war the warranty is often very specific as to what is included and what is not included. Um, and some of that is subject to whose determination. Um, I, I think um, a lot of times, um, on the other hand, people will think, well, I only have a one-year warranty. If I find a problem one year and one day, there's nothing that can be done. Um, that's not necessarily true legally. Um, and I've also seen contractors who believed, well, it's only a one-year warranty. After a year, I'm not liable for any problems. That's not that's not the law in North Carolina. Well, and, and sometimes you'll see people want to put it off on the the building inspectors and say, well, this is this past. You know, sometimes I'll see builders say, well, this past inspection, so that that means I I uh, built it correctly. Absolutely, I hear that a well, lot. Um, I've I've even been involved in some lawsuits where inspectors were brought in to the lawsuit. Um, I would generally advise against that. Um, sovereign immunity being the first reason. Um, second, w what I think both parties don't realize is the role of the county inspector is very limited to reviewing certain things. The role of the county inspector is not to review every single thing and make sure every possible thing was done correctly. Um, it, you know, the contractor's the one responsible for the construction. Uh, a lot of times, you know, you'll see builders take the position of, well, why did they, why did it pass inspection if it was done incorrectly? Well, maybe that's not something they inspect for. And I guess that's kind of like the discussion of the, the, the bank reps and draw applications. I mean, they're not, 
the county or city building inspectors not working on your behalf. They're serving a different person. They're they're working for the city and they're they're doing a different job. They're not your your agent. But yeah, exactly, um, their role is primarily um, safety concerns of making sure that the structure is built safely. Their role is not to make sure that you know you got everything you bargained for in your contract or that the design plans were followed exactly. You know they. Um, you know, inspectors are not architects, they're not engineers, they're not general contractors. Um, so it's still the general contractor that has the responsibility to make sure the construction's done properly. Um, you know, in in almost every case I see that that place has passed inspection and has a certificate of occupancy, but that by no means is a guarantee that you're not going to have any problems. You're not going to have a closing, and, and the the property owner or it's very it's usually not going to get that far if it doesn't pass inspection. Right. Um, well, do you have any advice about hedging against the possibility of liens on the property in a contract? Um, I think. Uh, well, I think one of the most important things that I think property owners don't realize is if a general contractor does not pay um, their subcontractors, the subcontractors can lien the property. Um, So it's super important for the owner to ensure that when they're paying the general contractor, that they're paying all of their subs. Um, You know, oftentimes there are clauses in contracts for that. Um, However, two things that I see very frequently. Um, one is um, they see lien waivers. You know, the general contractor will, when they pay a sub, have them sign a lien waiver. Um, that does not mean that they've waived the right to file a lien ever. It means that they've waived the right to file the lien for the amount of money that they're receiving for the work they're doing. Any work that's not yet billed or not yet paid, that doesn't apply. Um, you know, I've, I've seen some contractors try to have um, their subs sign something, you know, saying that they won't lien the property. Those are not enforceable in North Carolina. Uh, that's called a prospective lien waiver. You can't waive your right um, to file a lien. Uh, what I also see a lot is um, the notice to lien agent um, being served on the owner. Um, In North Carolina now, it is a law that the owner and general contractor have to designate what's called a lien agent. Um, I've seen many circumstances where the owner gets a notice to lien agent in the mail and thinks that someone has put a lien on their property. That's not what that is. That is just, that is something that um, is required to be done by law. Um, that's not a lien. What do you mean by it's required by law to, to make a notice to lien agent? You, um, you cannot get a building permit unless you designate a lien agent. Uh, it's usually someone from, you know, technically it's supposed to be the owner that designates it, but oftentimes the general contractor will, will handle that. Um, and, and a lien agent 
it's a formality that that they have to serve a copy of the notice to lien agent on um, the owner and on their subs. Uh, a lot of times people see that and realize that, think that someone's filing a lien or that someone's taking action to file a lien. Um, that's not what that is, but I think it's, it's important to, for you close on a property, to make sure that you have lien waivers from not only the general contractor, but all of their subs for the full amount of work that the subcontractor did. Um, because the you know period to file a lien um, is 120 days after they last work on the property. So you could think everything is fine, close on the purchase, and then get liens. Even if you paid your general contractor in full, if they didn't pay their subs, um, you're still going to have to be involved with dealing with a lien on your property. And you know, dealing with the potential of, of faulty construction, uh, would you say the property owner should have insurance while the project's going on or just verify through the contract that their builder is insured? Um, I, I, I think, um, I, I think it would also depend on the situation, but I think one thing that both uh, property owners and builders, um, do not realize often is the insurance policy is not a bond. It does not agree to pay if anything goes wrong. There are only certain circumstances um, where the insurance policy is um, is effective. Um, you know, it's not uncommon that you'll see a certificate of insurance saying that a contractor's insured up for a million dollars you'll find out later that that doesn't cover um, building defects. But what you, I guess what you'd prefer to see is a, a surety bond. I think you probably were, you know, prefer to see that too, but that's not a quick guarantee of payment either. I, I, think, um, I think it's important to find out what insurance your contractor carries um, to get a certificate of insurance in the beginning to know, um, find out are they gonna require all their subs to have insurance too, what are they gonna require them to have and how are they gonna verify? Um, a lot of times, um, you know, the owner will take out a builder's risk policy, sometimes the builder will take out a builder's risk policy. Um, those are all things that should be discussed before the contract's finalized. Well, Rebecca, I appreciate you coming out here and, and spend some time with us and, uh, and for all the information that you provided and, uh, you know, hope things go well for you and your practice. Well, thank you for having me.